Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Folklore, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Nancy Yan, and I am one of the hosts of this channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Margaret Magat, author of Balut Fertilized Egg and the Making of Culinary Capital in the Filipino Diaspora. Dr. Magat is an Asian-American folklorist whose research focuses on the folk practices of the Filipino diaspora. Her book, which we'll be discussing today, explores the ways in which balut, a common street snack in the Philippines, is framed through the lens of disgust, identity, and authenticity in the U.S. context. Margaret, I'm so glad to have you on here. Welcome. Well, thank you, Nancy. Can you? I hope you can hear me okay. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I'm very excited. And I also wanted to say it's Asian heritage month for may so i think it's it's really a good thing to get together and and talk about something that is a part of uh, asian heritage that isn't really understood yes thank you so much um you know first i want you to tell me what balut is i have to confess i have never uh, tried this delicious snack so i want to hear you talk more about it so first can you describe uh what balut is where I can find it, and how how to eat it. Well, balut is usually a 17-day-old um, embryonic egg that could be made either with a duck or a chicken egg. And in all aspects, it looks like a perfectly normal boiled egg. So it has the same components of a hard-boiled egg. It has the white, which is called the albumin, the yolk, of course, but it has the additional taste of hot soup, which is the liquid at the top when you tap it on the on the white part. And mm-hmm. it has, besides the yolk and the, the albumin, sometimes it can have an embryo of a little, basically a, a, a little duck or a little chicken embryo this, that is on top. Or it could be wrapped up in the white, which we call in... Um, Philippine language, balut saputi. So balut saputi is preferred by many and it's it's considered the ideal balut because you don't necessarily see the embryo and it's still small. Um, at 17 days, it's, it's not really uh, as big as if it was 19 days or 20 days, which in some cultures in Southeast Asia um, prefer to eat. Uh, the fertilized egg. I guess you could say that um, balut is 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 a fertilized egg, and in all aspects of when you think about a fertilized egg, right? It takes about twenty eight days for it to hatch. So balut at seventeen days, there's already something there. But then again, the minute that the egg is fertilized, there's already something growing. So even the ones in the regular store that you see that says fertile eggs, there's already a very, very tiny embryo 
that you don't normally see, but people eat it anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, but you never eat it raw, Nancy. That's like this something that you, you don't eat raw, which I've seen people do on online videos. They eat it raw wow. <laughs> to make it more, I guess, fearsome. Mm -hmm. But it's something that you always boil firsthand and then it's about 20 minutes and then you eat it with salt or with some condiments like maybe vinegar and chilies. Some people like it with chili sauce. I know that my Vietnamese American interviewees prefer it with a type of herb called rau rum. Mm -hmm. It's more like a, I guess, coriander type herb. And it is eaten in a, a party, especially in drinking sessions in the Philippines called inuman, where people sit around and just have a bunch of appetizers. Um, and balut is usually there. So you ha it's a very social type of food. And sometimes people also have ascribed medicinal benefits to it, like it supposedly can um, help men with their virility and stamina. I just want to make sure uh, I have this right because I've never tried Baloo before. So it's essentially like a boiled egg, but it has a little um, soup in it, right? When you boil it. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, and it's so, concentrated chicken soup. That is what I've heard. Um, heard it as uh, uh, being described. So then when you eat it, you peel it like a uh, like an egg and like you, you drink it or is that liquid going to uh, is that liquid going to spill out or how, how does that work? So the most important thing, that's why you have to just tap the wide top of the egg once mm -hmm. it's boiled. You tap it and you take out a little piece of the shell and you poke a hole in the membrane mm -hmm. and then you drink the soup. You drink it until there's nothing left and then you slowly peel the, the egg to make sure the liquid doesn't all run out mm -hmm. if you hadn't um, finished it already. And so once you peel it and there's no more liquid, you tend to eat it in a couple of bites, like one, two, three, four. I've seen people eat it in one bite uh, because it's like an egg, a hard-boiled egg, which it is. I see. Okay. All right. Yeah, I did hear um, a lot about you know how it's different from regular egg because of that um, concentrated chicken soup flavor. And you know, if it's a duck egg, is it still chicken flavored? No. It oh, tastes still... a little bit more. Uh, I guess you can say some people have described it more as gamey because duck doesn't taste quite like chicken. Okay. And it tends to have a lot more liquid than the duck. And some people prefer it. Uh, many more people prefer duck balut than chicken in general just because it's bigger and it has a, a lot of more of everything. Okay. All right. Um, so you mentioned that it is uh, for um, you mentioned that it's usually eaten in social settings in at a party in uh, uh, Filipino culture, but it's also uh, perceived as um, uh, an aphrodisiac or as a as a natural Viagra. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What's what's that about? Well, traditional use of balut ranges widely in the Philippines. And um, as I mentioned, it has 
certain medicinal uh, beliefs that's been ascribed to it. So for instance, eating balut for students who are studying for an exam is considered a good thing because it's it's brain food. You know, it's like a, a power bar of t- some kind. I see. But it also has been linked to, uh, for men, it's been linked to the fact that it's considered an aphrodisiac, but for men only. I interviewed... Uh, you know, about 25 to 35 people through the course of doing this book and my earlier work on it. And there, no one ever said it was good for women. The general belief is that it's good for men because it is something that is believed to strengthen the knees, pang palakas ng tuhod, which translates to strengthening the knees. Now, you could choose to do a literal uh, translation of that. Or you could choose to take it to a symbolic way, which is, as you know, psychologically speaking, the knee can be a metaphor for something else. But um, it has been known to be a aphrodisiac for men only. And, and for that reason, I think uh, quite a lot, in, in at least in the markets that I've seen it here in the U.S., sometimes it's marketed by uh, the farmer's market vendor as, as an aphrodisiac, a natural Viagra to men of all different kinds of um, heritage. So you have people who are eating it for specifically for that reason alone. I see. That is very interesting. So um, people eat it for health, for aphrodisiacal reasons, um, but also um, in social settings. Um, but you said it's also a street food. So um, in the Philippines, how uh, is it just found everywhere? Pretty much. So when I grew up in the Philippines uh, around the 70s, you could hear it pretty much being sold in the nighttime or the early morning. And it's usually a vendor, a balut vendor who comes around, a male vendor with a basket that has this uh, very nice cloths inside in terms of the cloth being soft and warm. And inside would be this balut egg. It's always served warm, right? Mm-hmm. So these um, vendors would be found either in neighborhoods or in places like uh, near bars or movie theaters that are closing, any place where there might be people coming out you know, late night or early morning. And now, um, since that time, I loot is pretty much just everywhere. It's always been found everywhere, but I noticed it in, in a mall during my visit in 2018. Um, there was balut sold in air-conditioned malls, organic balut, and also um, balut that was sold in, like, transportation hubs in just these little buckets uh, where people would say there was, you know, something there and you needed a quick snack on your next, you know, as you rush by on your next errand, it's there. Um, also along the streets when you're sitting in traffic, it, it could be sold next to you um, pretty much everywhere, even in stores and sometimes in restaurants. Um, of course, in the U.S., it isn't found everywhere. It's 
specifically only found in Asian markets, sometimes mm-hmm. farmers markets, and sometimes in restaurants. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I I was thinking that you know it's something that is not found commonly in you know um, American supermarkets, but probably in uh, Asian markets, and it's not very familiar to mainstream American audiences, except um, you know through the lens of reality TV shows. So, so even though I've never tried it before, I have heard of it, and of course I've seen its appearance on reality TV shows and on uh, late night shows such as um, James Corden's um, uh, Late Late Show, where it's uh, the, his uh, Spill Your Guts um, spill your guts segments where uh, 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 his interview, um, his interviewees are asked either, it's like a truth or dare, you know, you either answer this question or you have to eat some quote unquote disgusting food such as balut. So it seems that, you know, Balut was actually introduced to a lot of Americans by way of reality uh, TV shows, starting from uh, Fear Factor in 2002, which you um, mentioned in your book, where contestants were uh, challenged to consume Balut eggs in order to uh, advance to the final round. And uh, you you say that this seems to set off a chain of Balut appearances on reality TV for the next two decades, up, you know, up to the present but always with what you called, um, I quote, a performance of disgust. So can you talk a little bit more about what what you mean about um, what you mean by performance of disgust and why is it so often accompanied um, with the consumption of balut whenever it makes an appearance on TV, even though it's, you know, this wonderfully delicious snack? Well, I love your question and I, I just would like to first treat it by going back and mentioning that when you eat balut, depending on the context, right, who is eating it and what, then the meaning changes. Like if it's men eating it with, as an aphrodisiac, then, you know, it's clearly different than uh, women who eat it, you know, to help them with their, you know, low levels of iron and calcium. So talking about balut, on TV, you can already say that there's no attempt for a cultural context to be introducing the food before it's shown on, you know, the particular performance, right? So the question, what do I mean by performance of disgust and, and how and why it accompanies um, the consumption of balut? First of all, there's this idea that you know, balut, by its mere appearance, it's a food that evokes a reaction of some sort, right? So that this reaction is performative. So to paraphrase um, Barbara Kirshner Van Gimblet, uh, who wrote about food as a performance medium, she had once theorized that when you take away food from just eating as a nourishment, and, and that's a, a very, you know, that's a paraphrasing of, of her quote. That can lead to things like culinary feats or performance art when you start moving away from this idea of just eating for nourishment. So in other words, when food is being used for other reasons besides nutrition, then you are veering into performance territory, 
right? So the interesting thing about balut is, yes, it's got this delicious, and sometimes I, I think you could say it's even bland flavor because it just tastes like a hard-boiled egg. But because of its appearance, just the fact that it's there and its strong presence, it's already allowing a type of performance to emerge, right? So before it was on reality TV, traditionally, when people were introducing Balut to, to youngsters or to, to visitors, right, um, you would be there to try Balut if you were visiting the Philippines for the first time, for instance, or if you were a child, you'd be, come on, you know, try it now. It's good for you type of thing. So there was this dare factor to it that was already um, something that was found in, in the culture, right? But the, the discuss part, right, that was something that I believed emerged that what could be traced back to 2002 when it was first featured in Fear Factor, where it was a part of the, you know, part of the contestants who were on there. They had to eat it in order to move ahead toward earning $50,000, right? So this type of performance of disgust, I think, was drawing from this long tradition of reality TV where you would see this food that has been sensationalized and made up to be truly awful and nasty, right? It also, it also draws, I think, from, if you were to look into it further, into this even longer tradition of how um, the foods of early immigrants were treated once they arrived to America. I mean, you could uh, talk about, you know, the way Italians, early immigrants were, Italians and their food were treated and link it later to how Asian immigrants' food were depicted in a exoticized and, and really denigrated, denigrating way. So I think, you know, I, I hope I've, I've answered it, your question in, in some manner, but the performance of Disgust too I, is a concept that I came up with because for me, there was this, this, I think this context, context that you as a viewer would see, and it's almost what you expected. You expected to see someone acting nauseated or about ready to throw up, right? And um, this kind of performance is something that people are drawn into because there's shock value. And a lot of people want to remember what it was like to see it in Survivor and in, in Fear Factor. And, you know, they start watching these videos, these what I call Balut Challenge videos, because they want to see what other people do when they're confronted with this egg. And it's that kind of curiosity factor, this sensationalism that draws in a lot of people to click, right? And each click brings in money to whoever uh, has developed that particular video or site. Do you think that this performance of Disgust is um, also racialized? Because you mentioned earlier that uh, the foods of um, early Asian immigrants were also 
um, treated in this same way. So it's not just a shock value, but it's also racialized because this is the food of, quote unquote, the other. Absolutely. Yes, that's the whole uh, exoticized uh, othering of, of the, you know, of people uh, who are different or perceived different from yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So there's definitely that whole aspect too that might increase the attraction of these videos because it's people looking to validate what they believe to be a disgusting aspect of, of, you know, other people's culture. Mm -hmm. And especially, uh, yeah, reinforcing, as you say, you know, reinforcing these kind of like unconscious perceptions of the other is, and I think especially of Asian, um, Asian food, you know, I've also done some research on uh, Chinese food in Chinese restaurants in the 19th century. You know, Chinese food was simultaneously disgusting, but also delicious and also perceived as addictive. And, um, you know, always having these uh, strange, exotic foods. And um, you mentioned, you know, to go along with the idea of uh, performance of disgust, there's also that also belongs to this canon of disgust, which means, which, and, you know, I'm going to paraphrase and you can correct me on this. I guess uh, this uh, group of foods that's always being accompanied or perceived as disgusting and used kind of like to gross people out. Um, so, so I'm thinking like along with, and I'm thinking in particular like Asian food, such as um, for, for example, Chinese food, chicken feet, it would be part of a, uh, that kind of discuss, and I could see that people who are not familiar with chicken feet would, you know, perform exaggerated disgust when they eat chicken feet. Yes, yeah, that's usually the case when you have these foods that have this very strong um, connection to the culture. It's, you know, chicken feet. It's like you're eating it, and you're you know, sort of proving that you are a quote and unquote, you know, true Chinese person when you eat something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's this, that let, let's discuss uh, for a moment the foods from other cultures like balut, like chicken feet, right? I mean, you have in, I believe it's in Iceland, you have this very strong um, fermented shark. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of that one? Yes, I've heard something along those lines. Something for some some kind of fermented uh, delicacy. Right, right. And then you have the durian too. The durian challenge that you can see uh, sometimes online uh, with people, you know, attempting to to try it, and always with the this accompanying uh, nauseated, disgusted type of reaction in this whole this whole, you know, gestures and features of the face and the expressions, it all draws from that. So I've, I've thought a lot about this. And I think that um, such strong foods, uh, such as, you know, balut and chicken feet, they, they have a way of uh, acting sort of like a test. Um, there are could be seen as a, a rite of passage of some type where 
a person can be seen as, you know, first, as you know, the three stages of Van Genep's, um, you have the separation and then there's a transition and then the incorporation, right? So the person who's facing this food is separated from the other people who are eating it at first. And then there's this transition part where, you know, she or he will attempt to uh, try the food. And then if successful, then that person is incorporated into the group, right? So I think that these types of foods do serve a purpose of making some kind of statement as to what that person or that individual is trying it is attempting to do. What kind of transition is that person making and into what kind of identity, right? So it begs for further analysis and then in the sense that what is the purpose of the person? What is the motivation of the person eating it? I'm interested in talking a little bit more about this idea. So what you're saying is that Balut, um, beyond you know, serving as a vehicle for performing disgust, that it also, uh, uh, it also um, serves a purpose in perhaps um, verifying something about the consumer. Mm-hmm. Would you say that is correct? Yes. Or, and yes, it's yes, I do. And what is it verifying about the consumer? And and I I feel like it's important to say that it will verify different things about a consumer, um, whether or not you know they're Filipino. Yes. So it goes back again to the meaning changing depending on the context, right? So if we're just talking about people eating balut online um, as a part of a challenge uh, and there's no attempt to make cultural context, then they're trying to verify or create their reputation of being a foodie who's not afraid of eating anything, is open to everything. And in that respect, they're most likely hoping to get some kind of recognition, perhaps admiration from people who watch it or know that they've tried it. Um, As you know, after Fear Factor, a whole bunch of other shows came out with it and it was featured in in the food travel shows with, uh, you know, the late Anthony Bourdain and with Andrew Zimmern and with all... Gordon Ramsay. So they all had featured Balut in some way, shape, or form. And viewers were sitting on, you know, their couches and their living rooms. They're watching this and they want to emulate it, right? So we have this this food that's part of the experience economy that we're living in where we want to 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 act and, and eat it as a way of experiencing it. We want to experience what the reality TV shows are doing, right? So there's that there's that aspect, I think, of of foods like balut, where it, it depending on the context, you want to verify that you are this intrepid foodie, right? Now, if you were eating it in 
just a typical type of social setting where you are uh, a person who's never tried it and you are returning Filipino, for instance, and you've never tried it and you're coming home for the first time or you're, you know, being close to Filipino food and what's been such a long time. You have this desire in general to, you know, incorporate that sense of Filipino-ness in you. You're coming back to your roots eating this food. So it's a it's sort of a test, a verification of your Filipino-ness, right? To eat this food and to declare your that you're a part of the group Filipino. It brings me to the um my next question, which I was curious about. Um since two thousand and two, um there have been several blue eating contests that were sponsored by uh, Filipino community groups or Filipino restaurants. And um, I was wondering, are these blue eating contests a response to um, how blue has been portrayed by um, by American reality TV? Um, so if you could talk a little bit more about these blue eating contests and um, do you think that they're a reaction to reality TV portrayals? I do, as an I do think like that. Um, balut eating contest, specifically the one I saw in San Francisco, called the Pistahan um, Balut Eating Contest. It was definitely created after the Fear Factor episode, according to Tita Parmelli, who I talked to um, as one of my interviewees. She got the idea shortly after she watched the show, that she would come up with an eating contest that featured Balut. Um, she thought it would be a way for people to come and, and uh, you know, that they would be attracted to see this because they saw it on TV and then that this strong curiosity factor would, would make it a really uh, hot attraction for the, for the festival. And, she was right. Um, these contests, this balut eating contest that's either sponsored by a community group or by Filipino restaurants, they were reacting to how balut was first portrayed on television. Um, because I think to set the context for this, you have to you can see that balut was appropriated by reality TV and the eating contests are the way for the Filipino groups to take it back. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of similarities when you see it on TV and the balut eating contest, you're, they're both eating an egg, right? Have you seen both examples, Nancy on online? I have, and I have not uh, actually uh, seen videos of the uh, balut eating contest. Okay. When when you do see it online or live, right, the balut eating contests seem to be similar to what you see on TV and in reality TV in the sense that they're, they're both eating an egg, the fertilized egg. But the main difference is that the eating contests, they have this cultural introduction to balut. They're explaining to the audience what it is in before and during and in and during this and the sidebars, the conversations with people, um, there's 
also in the contests in the U.S. I have never seen a contest in the Philippines with uh, balut. Is that in this U.S. balut eating contest, there's a element of culinary nationalism where the food, the balut, is being tied back to the image of the nation, right? And you can see this in pictures, right? Uh, there's this winner, Romeo Perez, who won the Pistahan contest for seven years in a row. He started with a regular baseball cap of his favorite um, team. And then while he was getting down to it, you know, he took that off and there was another cap underneath when he was in the finals and it was his, the Philippine flag, right? You were getting down to his real identity, so to speak what he wanted to to at least mark that, that moment. Because we have lots of identities as people and they're flexible. And it's when we decide to market that particular identity, then, you know, we can trot it out at the right moment. And he was trotting it out at the, you know, final seconds of winning this balut eating contest. Um, so you see this, this culinary nationalism in eating contests, which you do not see in the videos online where it has these outrageous titles usually of, you know, American person tries balut for the first time or, or Australian tries balut or um, an Indian eats balut. And there's usually this, it's a script they follow. You know, they show the egg. It's like, depicted without the soup or maybe just all broken up and then the person like lifting it up and trying to eat it in segments and who knows if it's even warm and then all the other types of features of the gagging thing and the the gestures that you accompany with the performance of this guy so there's a real difference there um there's no attempt to to introduce it the way people traditionally eat it and it's just being used or manipulated to convey some kind of um or provoke some kind of reaction it seems you know yeah yeah it seems decontextualized when it's on reality shows but at these um blue-eating contests um there's a little bit more context in terms of you know a filipino identity but also creating perhaps a new context in the sense that it's um, a reclamation of a Filipino identity. It seems to me that, uh, you know, it's this dynamic of, well, you know, you think my food is disgusting, but I'll show you, I'm proud of my food. It's not disgusting. Um, and so, you know, I'll show you how not disgusting it is. I'm going to eat 15 of these eggs in this eating contest. <laughs> And what 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 is yes. what what is the winner? I mean, how what's what's the maximum that somebody has uh, eaten? It? Well, I talked. Okay, well, I talked to Wayne Aldinho, who was um, the New York winner of the three contests that the restaurants Jukni and Maharlika had um, sponsored back in 2012, 2013, and twenty fourteen, and which drew a lot of uh, attention. And he ate 40 eggs in five wow. minutes. In five minutes? Nobody has been able to break that record. Yes. 
Nobody's been able to break that record as far as I know. I've only, um, you know, Romeo has, has eaten, from what I saw, at least six, you know, in a certain time or in the in the five minutes that he had the final five, he had to eat three again, uh, you know, after they winnowed down the other challengers, the last three eggs in five minutes, right? Wow. So, I'm, yeah. I just... I just Wayne can't imagine eating 40 eggs. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a pretty interesting, pretty interesting thing to see. Yes. Um, I think that the other thing I wanted to ask about uh, these blue ink contest contest is that it's such, it seems like such contrast contrast to how um, uh, blue is portrayed in reality shows, but in these blue ink contests, it's really celebrated. And you mentioned that at these um, events, there is such, it brings about such a, a sense of communitas. So can you uh, talk a little bit more about that? Um, I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that is a, it was, is an interesting uh, emotion or feeling that can be evoked when you are in the middle of, watching or participating in this contest. And so, you know, the feeling of communitas is, you can define it sort of, you know, like a sense of community where there's, you know, possibility of respect or potential of respect for everyone and, and sort of being on equal terrain, right? I'm, I'm just defining it loosely, but the feeling of, of having this in, during the contest is you could see it quite clearly, especially uh, during this one time, I believe it was in 2016 when PJ Quesada, he was the MC of the contest. Um, he urged people to, to see Balut as a way to, to, to tie themselves to the culture because for so long it's been used as a tool of oppression is what he said. So he urged people in this very moving um, monologue, basically, to, you know, embrace it and to turn it around and to show that, you know, Filipinos are awesome and Balut is awesome and to eat it, eat it for the culture and eat it for our kids is the way he said it. So it's definitely celebratory and embracing of, of, your identity as a Filipino American. And it's a reaction, I believe, that has come from so many years of hiding the kinds of food, the insider foods that we eat. Um, just in the Filipino culture alone, we have um, dinuguan, which is a blood stew, mm -hmm. um, uh, with use, usually has organ meats inside. And then, of course, there's balut. And you know, you have the other type of foods that are considered um, outsider foods, that foods that you could, you know, and show your your friend who's visiting your house for the first time. You know, this is adobo, for example. And, you know, they have a cultural context, a familiarity of, you know, meat in a brown sauce, right? Mm -hmm. Or even the noodle dish. And so... It doesn't require a 
explanation or a, a proper cultural introduction. You just, you know, it's quick to say, it. look, it's meat and brown sauce. But with balut, it definitely takes time and a little a more effort to introduce it because not a lot of people have a cultural referential when they're approaching this food that is, um, you know, a partially developed chicken or duck inside an egg. Mm-hmm. And balut, um, this I it, this idea of culinary nas- nationalism. Um, so balut, you mentioned that in your book, and I thought that was a really interesting concept: culinary nationalism. So um, balut has moved a little bit away from, uh, well. Maybe it's too early to say that. I was going to say it moved away from, you know, the performance of Disgust. And then we have, um, you know, these blue ink contests, which is about culinary nationalism. Is there any other food in the Filipino um, uh, cultural cuisine that is like blue, where it's simultaneously uh, reviled as uh, disgusting in the West, but also kind of uh, revered in uh, in Filipino culture as delicious? That's a, that's a really good question. I just thinking about it now, um, I think the closest dish that I would say with, that has sort of a reputation like Balut, but it's not really seen on TV. It would be the blood stew, the dinuguan, um, that is, you know, revered in, in fiestas, and in parties, especially during the holidays, because it's served with puto um, that you can dip into the sauce, and it's quite delicious. Uh, but it's if you explained it to others that this is, you know, organ meats and it's serving the pig's blood, you know, a type of uh, stew. I don't think it's going to go uh, very well with the with the other person. So, yes, there's. Definitely, that's one. And, and, and you can think about similar, you know, parallel types of dishes in other cultures that have that reputation, right? And I think, though, with Balut, it stands alone in the sense that um, usually I think people have an, the opportunity from their, you know, people from particular culture have the opportunity to introduce their foods to the outsiders, right? Um, but in the case of Balut, when this food was first introduced into mainstream American audience, there was no attempt to have any kind of explanation as to what it was and what what the traditional uses are. It was just this, eat this so you can get $50,000 or else get out of the show, right? So the fact that it was introduced in that way um, made it the dish, you know, more than any other dish in Philippine culture. And it's not really a dish. It's just a, it's just a street food, a snack, right? right. Made it like the target of, of so much, um, so many reactions against it. And now the reaction, the tide, at least in, amongst Filipino American groups is to, to take it back, right? to own it, um, to own back this, this food that's been appropriated in the beginning by Western 
television. And there seems also to be a move in, in Western television. There also seems to be a move towards using Balut as this um, marker of, you know, I'm a foodie. Look how sophisticated I am. But uh, because it's a, it, but again, with this exotification, like I'm so cosmopolitan that I can eat um, right. blue, which a lot of people see as disgusting. So I'm very cool. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that the trend of blue, which is like a street food, also kind of moving into um, maybe, I don't know if you would call it high cuisine, but but obviously it's uh, it's being noticed by um, celebrity chefs. Yes. Well, I, I would like to bring up here, uh, when answering your question, this idea of culinary capital, which um, sociologists um, Peter Nakarato and Kathleen Mabesco had mentioned in their book on, on culinary capital. And it's this idea of, um, you know, eating something that can bring you recognition, the eater, that can bring you recognition or some kind of social status, right? So it could either be a food that is um, considered really valuable by a lot of groups, like, uh, you know, something really expensive, maybe a gold fleck um, decadent dessert, uh, with real metallic gold sprinkled mm-hmm. all over it that costs uh-huh. an arm and a leg. Right. <laughs> or it could be something really disgusting that nobody would want. When I say nobody, that, you know, the person who's watching it thinks nobody wants this, to eat it at all, right? So there's this this movement especially as the, you know, food has become used through the course of the last two or three decades, you know, the way the food network ascended into the consciousness of people and, and food as itself has become more fetishized. I think Um, there was this movement of people wanting to gain recognition and, you know, a status that shows they've got good taste or broad taste in food, that they're omnivores that can eat anything um, that was further exaggerated by, you know, the popularity of um, these globe-trotting stars like Anthony Bourdain and, and, you know, the critics, the food critics who get to eat all these foods that we see on TV and online. So, People wanted to have a little piece of that themselves, right? This mm-hmm. is what the experienced economy wants us to do. They, they want to have that for themselves. And this food, eating this food, allows people a way to gain that type of cultural capital or culinary capital, to be more specific. And you can parlay that eventually if you're good, if you do enough of that, you can parlay it into, I believe, economic gain. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole cottage industry that's sprung up around Balut, the use of it in order to have people come and, and, and do their, you know, look at your your website. You know, I remember even seeing one 
um, that that this webs this website had this balut eating um, performance, and then when you start clicking into it, you get into the real the the website developer was actually an artist selling their work. So you see, it leads back to what are they trying to use the egg for? What are they trying to to achieve? And there's many reasons, and and most often it's economic and and social recognition and economic gain. And for this kind of gain, I think it does really count that it's perceived as something that is authentic, right? And I'm really intrigued by the issues of authenticity that you've raised um, in your book. And um, I want to quote like um, something that you've written in your book, and you've quoted another scholar, and I think it really uh, speaks to um, how Blute has been given value in terms of its authenticity. So um, you quote another scholar, Robert Koo, who writes that, quote, authenticity is the white whale of modern epicurism, tirelessly pursued by hungry Ahabs, e.g., cosmopolitan foodies and displaced migrants in search of the perfect native meal, end quote. Um, and you go on to say, what else is Balut but the white whale that's arguably the perfect native meal? As pointed out before, its main attraction is the fact that its unadorned appearance is its authenticity, authenticating power, the fact that it has a reputation as a food that's considered dubious and can be seen as dangerous and polluting practically ensures that consumers can authenticate themselves by standing out from the crowd as an adventurer, a conqueror able to overcome what is perceived as a taboo act by many. And I really love what you've written there because I think it's really interesting that um, there's a, uh, in order for those things to happen, you know, it has to be seen as authentic. It has to be dangerous. Um, uh, in order, to, uh, part of it has to be dangerous in order to be seen as authentic. But then it also gives the consumer, um, who you know, who who didn't grow up with it, this um, this power to conquer. And uh, you know what you what you've written overcome what is perceived as a taboo act by many. So, um, yeah. That's that's what I want to say. I'd love to, I'd love to hear you talk more about the authenticity of pollute. Well, as you know, I think that authenticity for a lot of people, especially for me, is a hard uh, concept to fully accept and fully define. Right. So I was taught that there's no such thing as a sense authenticity in graduate school. And it's a dangerous concept in terms of authenticity has brought on a lot of people who have been driven on by this notion of this is authentic culture, this is my nation, this has been, you know, and we're seeing that kind of dangerous uh, kind of um, idea of what authenticity could be. And it's something that we truly need to be cognizant of so that it doesn't drive people into this notion of this unblinking and just stagnant notion of 
what things should be and that it never should be changing, right? So I think when you talk about authenticity in food, though, it's got room there for an understanding of what authenticity um, could mean. And I'm not really comfortable using authenticity, the word. I would say that traditional for me is what authenticity in food is, is more aligned to. And so what I mean is, um, is this food that you're eating at the moment, is it going to be considered traditional by people from that culture? Is, is this food evoking the same type of memory and reaction as the foods that you remember your mom making, your, your grandma making um, when you were growing up? Never mind the fact that you're growing up in a completely different country, you're using a different type of ingredient in the sense that you're substituting this ingredient or you're using a type of tomato that's not from, you know, the particular San Marzano region in in Italy, for instance, for spaghetti sauce. Is it a food or a dish that is evocative of the same memories and the same emotions? And if the answer is yes, then that food should be considered traditional and should be considered authentic. But then you get to this whole you know, other issue about, you know, certain foods that have been marked specifically by, you know, official official nations like Italy, like Parmigiano-Reggiano, right? It has to be stamped from that, you know, province that it's from, from Parma, in order to be considered authentic. And then you have wines that are labeled, you know, Appellation d'Origine, or the you know the denominazione or the, the the you know denomination of its if it's if it's I'm sorry <laughs> the the denomination or home of its you know production where it was produced and where it was grown so there's this you know concept of authenticity that you can't argue about because people who live in that area who produce that would all their hearts believe that it is the most authentic Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese. And people like me who consume it say, it is authentically Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese if it comes from that region, right? But does that mean that the other kinds of cheeses that are produced in the particular type of manner, but coming from a different area, like Wisconsin and labeled Parmesan, is that something that we shouldn't consider eating it's equally delicious right right do i who gets to say that that cheese is better than the other i'm not even going to go there but can you label it authentic well <laughs> that's a question that, you know i i laugh because um i i understand it's a very um unwieldy topic and um, I've also encountered it too in my own research with um, Chinese restaurants and Chinese food. And uh, it's a very rich topic. Um, and I, I agree with you that there are also some dangers 
um, associated with uh, with uh, calling something authentic because you know when you authenticate there's also this sense of legitimizing and inclusion and exclusion right and if there's a monetary value that comes with it then there's a problem with that too um but balut you know i i think that what you what you're saying about you know when something's authentic does it evoke a certain kind of tradition or memory um and so when you say that so with balut would you prefer to call it traditional rather than authentic well traditional in the sense that if we're going to talk about you know a food as being the having the power to authenticate you can't really say it as you can't you really use the word tradition because i don't think it's strong enough i think that the word authenticity has to be used in this context because it's it has this capacity to evoke a really strong reaction by its mere looks by its mere presence right so it's doesn't really translate to anything else but being by being portrayed as it is so it's its sort of true self right and if you're thinking about an idea or a notion of what authentic means it's supposed to mean before it's been hijacked with so many meanings that one agreed meaning was that it was supposed to mean the true self or basically just who you are in essence right and because balut is just itself it's 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 this embryonic self when you take off the shell it is what it is right it's an apologetic um, appearance and so I, I think here the power of its if it's authenticating power <laughs> it's sort of redundant but the fact that it can mark a person and as, uh, enable them to transition and be incorporated into a group of their own, whether as a foodie or as a uh, Filipino uh, uh, heritage, it's because of the fact that Balut is has this authenticating um, ability to to mark that, to mark it, and to signify that move. And when you once you incorporate it into your body, then you are a member, a, you know, honorary member of that group, and it's because of the fact that it is basically itself, and it has that um, the nature of I am what I am. You know, use me for for how you're using me, and in that instance, well, if you want to use the word authenticity to to, to define it, that it has that. Uh, capability of of having that um, characteristic, then it is, it is, uh, it is authentic. I see. So I think maybe I misunderstood something. So Balut authenticates, but it's authenticity in of itself. That is something that is more like a. Um, ambiguous kind of interpretation? 
Yes, it's more ambiguous in the sense that it's appropriate too, don't you think? I mean, you're talking about mm-hmm. an egg that's neither a, a chick or just an egg. It's, it's in between. It's in this mm-hmm. liminal state that you can decide to for yourself what you want to see it as. Mm-hmm. And so that notion of authenticity is perhaps appropriate for describing it because of the fact that it's got that slippery slippery uh, feel to to this particular food that we're discussing today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> true, very true. So, um, you know, I've taken so much of your time already, you know, talking about uh, such an interesting um, uh, food ways aspect of um, Filipino culture. Um, I'm looking forward to the time when I can see you in person and then you can, you know, you can introduce me to actually eating balut since I haven't eaten it yet. Um, but before we go, I'm just wondering, oh, what, so great. what is, what is, um, what, what, what's, what do you, what's next for balut? Like, where do you see it going in American culture or Asian American culture? Probably is it a going lot to be rising more. in popularity? Will it, will, Will the disgust factor go ever go away? I don't think the disgust factor will ever go away. I think that just because of the fact that it looks definitely, it looks a little bit more challenging for people from other cultures. It will be hard for them to accept it. But do I think it'll be found in many more cases? I think so. I think with the rise of Filipino restaurants, especially the kind of restaurants where you can go in um, pre-COVID-wise and hopefully um, soon again where you can go in and enjoy a fine cuisine, that you're going to find balut in different incarnations, maybe in certain dishes and also um, featured more. And I also think that an interesting part of balut is that it's an alternate source of protein. I don't think I've mentioned it as a street food. You know, it is uh, many times the only dish that people in, you know, really poverty-stricken circumstances in the Philippines could afford if they could afford it. And it was a really a cheap and invaluable um, source of protein. And as we're moving toward um, this time in our food production, there's interest in different alternative sources of protein. And it might be um, something that people can look at as another way of incorporating that, especially in this, you know, craze for keto or low carb type diets. I think it I think that there's a definitely uh, a bright, sunny outlook for this type of food. Mm. Okay. Yeah. It's um, yes. And uh, I've also heard that uh, Filipino cuisine is kind of like the next big thing, which, um, you know, yes, I have... I've been saying that for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I don't Filipino know if it's going to really be big. true. It, it's already big with a lot of people, let's just say. Yes. Yes. But until you can see it in every town in America, like Chinese, uh, American Chinese restaurants, then I, I don't think that it's gotten to where it has, it has, where it can go. 
Right. Right. We're getting there. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for um, talking to me about Balut. I mean, uh, your research is really rich and really fascinating. And um, thank you for writing it. And thank you for talking to me about this, uh, talking to me about your research here today. Um, the book is uh, Balut, Fertilized Egg and the Making of Culinary Capital in the Filipino Diaspora. And uh, the author is Dr. Margaret Magat. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nancy.